join us this morning. Uh, take your Bible and open the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to get right into things. I hope that you have had a good week. I know God's been good to you. I just hope you realize it, and sometimes it's hard to trace that providential goodness, but we know from his word that all things work together for good if we are loving God and are serving him, called according to his purpose. They're not always good to us, but they're always good for us, and so we rest in those promises. So last time we were together, we were talking about the two main problems that were going on in the disorderly conduct enemy of the church at Corinth, and it was the place of women in the church, and we discussed that in detail, and you can watch probably the last two videos to get the scripture on that, and then we began just a little bit talking about the disorderly conduct in the Lord's Supper. And I would remind you that as you watch this, I can't see you. And so if something I say encourages you or you disagree, please comment in the sections in the section below. And I promise I'll respond to it. I read every one of them. If you like it, like it. And if it blesses your heart, share it with somebody. And that will help us out a little bit uh, as we go forward so that people can learn the word of God. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, let me just remind you what I'm talking about. The Lord's Supper is a time that Jesus Christ instituted with his disciples at the Passover feast. Right before he died where he took the bread and he said that this was his body and representative of it and they ate of it broken for us. And then he took the cup, the fruit of the vine, the wine and they drank that and he said it was representative of his blood and he tells them to do it in remembrance of him and that he would not drink of that cup again until he drank it with us in his father's kingdom is what he said. And so we are anticipating that day. But evidently in the church in Corinth, there were some, some problems going on, some things that were disruptive and disorderly. And remember, Corinthians, the book 1 Corinthians, is a letter written by Paul to the church at Corinth in response to a letter they wrote to him. And they had asked him a lot of questions, and he was responding to these questions and dealing with issues in the church. And so as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we got into this just a little bit last week, but I want to go in more detail today. There are two main things that Paul is addressing at the church at Corinth when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Verse 21 is the first one I want to deal with. It talks about that while people were there eating the Lord's Supper, they were dealing with gluttony and drunkenness. And um, verse 21, for an eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, one is hungry, another is drunken. What don't you have houses to eat in? And as you read through these things, and I, I don't because of my limited time in teaching, I don't have time to read the whole passage. But what he's dealing with is the fact that their Lord's Supper or communion is different than the way I grew up. Now, I don't know your background, but normally in the churches that I grew up in, either on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, some churches insist on doing it on Sunday night because Jesus did it at night. That was when he did it. But some churches do it in the morning. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it once a quarter. There are some churches and denominations that do it every Sunday. I, I don't know about all of that. I feel like that would take away the specialness of it. But either way, most of us probably do not do it enough. And, uh, but what it is is just a quiet time at the end of the service where we would reflect on what Christ had done for us, and we would reflect on our own condition before him. We would make sure our hearts were right with God, and then we would take the bread and the cup. We'd sing a song, and we would pray and leave. And it was almost an addendum onto the end of a service, or maybe it was a service dedicated to that specifically. But that's, what, that's all we did. I mean, if you ate at the uh, church, you got a little tiny piece 
uh, bread, usually unleavened bread, depending on how fast and hard they stuck to those rules. Uh, it, it didn't taste good. I remember as a little boy taking it, I was like, I'm not looking forward to that. And then you needed the juice at the end to wash it down. And uh, so that's all you got. But he's talking about uh, people eating and drinking. And he refers to the drunkenness and gluttony and drunkenness. That, that, that always goes together. And he's talking about this because in their time, they would have what they would call the agape feast or the love meal where everybody in the church would bring food and they would sit down and eat. And then afterward, they would go into the Lord's Supper. And that's what he's referring to. And so he's reminding them that that time of coming together for the Lord's Supper is not for eating and drinking. That You can do that before. That's fine. You can do that at home, whatever the case may be. But when it comes into the Lord's Supper, it's not for gluttony. It's not for drunkenness. And you got to understand that there's a cultural application because the Corinthians were coming from a life of heathenism, gluttony, immorality, drunkenness, and sometimes those attitudes carried over into things at church. And if you don't think that's still happening, you're just not going to church anywhere because that happens all over the place. But the drunkenness and the gluttony were part of those things. And he's reminding them that that has no place in the Lord's Supper. It is a time of rejoicing for sure. We're going to talk about that in more detail. It is a time of celebration, but it's not a time for gluttony and drunkenness and I just want to caution all of us that are Christians to be careful not to take cultural things that are in the scripture and make present day application in a hard and fast way. The principle certainly carries over, but not the hard and fast rule. And I worked at a church one time where there were two ladies who taught Sunday school class and they taught teenage girls. And one of the teenage girls told me that Brother Dusty, one of the things they get on almost every Sunday is the fact that it is wrong to eat at church. And they base it on this passage of scripture. The fact that Paul says, hey, you can eat at home and you can drink at home. Don't be bringing that over here. And they use that as an application that when we had dinner on the grounds at church or homecoming or a fellowship time after church, that we're in violation of scripture because it was a sin to eat at church. That's just taking a cultural application that Paul is making and making it into a present day principle to govern what goes on in our churches. Listen, God has no problem with us getting together and fellowshipping as believers in a potluck or a fellowship time or the fifth Sunday of the month or homecoming or whatever it is that you call it at your organization in your church. God has no problem with those things. What he does have a problem with is us carrying over those attitudes into the Lord's Supper and making that a time of gluttony and feasting. and that's, that's not what it's for. It's not what it's for at all. So don't carry those things over. The second problem is related to the first. And I want to make the point. It's the problem of exclusivism. And back up in 18 and 19, he gives us this, that there are divisions among us in verse 18. Those divisions lead to heresy. And the problem that he's having is that when you bring food to church, well, I've I got to be careful here. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. There are those who can afford and do bring a lot of food. And then there's that one family that has 14 kids and they bring a bag of potato chips and a two liter and devour the food like locust. Fine, whatever. You have social and financial tiers of people. In the church at Corinth, you had slaves, former slaves, you have Romans, all right? And in the Roman society, there was a vast difference between those two social groups. 
And those social groups led to division in the church. And the term division really just means cliques in the church. And he's talking about that these social cliques in the church divided the people, especially when it came to eating, because those who were wealthy had lots to eat, and they got gluttonously drunk. And those who didn't have any food watched in the love feast as others ate, and they had nothing. And Paul's like, look, eat at home. Don't bring that into the Lord's Supper. And as he dealt with these folks, it's a reminder that there were, in our churches, we always have to fight against the exclusiveness of those who are in the church and those who are coming into the church. It's a struggle as a pastor to get people to be friendly, to get people to go outside of the natural friendships that they develop. To include other people. Honestly, the Lord has helped me with this because I was not like this before. And I'm still not all I ought to be. But I make it a point. I try to every Sunday to go talk to people that I do not normally talk to. That I don't have a relationship with. That we don't naturally click on certain things. And I try to do that to exercise myself to get me out of the little comfortable box that I sit in, and to engage that person and pull them in. So, Brother Dusty, you're, you're motivated to do so. You are a pastor. Well, you're motivated to do so because the scriptures tell us that we must show ourselves friendly. And I've always gotten frustrated with people who come to church and they say, you know, I, I just don't connect with anybody. I, 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 nobody talks to me. And they come into church and they sit down in their chair and they wait for somebody to come to them. Get up. Go around and talk to people. Well, I'm just not a social person. All of us are working on what we are to become what Christ desires for us to be. And if we're going to interact within the church, we need to get outside of ourselves and get out of our comfort zone and force us to help include people into the body of Christ. And especially if I'm talking to you and you're part of a white audience, how does a black person feel when they come to your church? How would you feel if you went to a predominantly black church and you're the only white person there? I promise you this, they'd be more friendly to you than white people are to black people who come in their church. I promise you that. They are. Because we, as white people, can get arrogant and uppity and whatever other words you want to use, especially if you give us a little bit of money, we begin to act like we have some exclusive right to be somewhere when the church is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people is what God said. And so when you see minorities come in your church, you better make sure that you go out of the, your way to include them, not in some kind of ostentatious way that makes them feel weird and awkward, but act normal around them. And if somebody comes to your church and you don't talk to them, you don't speak to them, especially if you're in a smaller church, shame on you. Shame on you. Get up out of your chair and outside of your little clique of friends and the social club that your church has become and engage others for the purpose of discipling them and bringing them into the church. And I know a lot of churches are dying because people are content and comfortable right where they are with the group that they have just waiting on Jesus to come back while they shrivel up and die. There are churches within miles of the church I'm speaking of right now that are just like that. Not built to grow. No. Built for exclusiveness. And if you should get so lucky as to get saved there and get included in stuff, you should consider yourself fortunate indeed. But he's talking about this type of attitude. The divisions that exist among us, especially when we come together at a social function. Also, be careful about these things. That's one of the reasons I love the book of 1 Corinthians. It's because it's so practical. We want to get in the deep doctrine and the high things of God. And God said, no, be friendly to the people who are coming to your church. 
Avoid the exclusivism and division that is so much a part of humanity. And do not let race and social status and education and financial status create division in the church. Do not. Do not. So go look for that family. They don't look like they belong. Kids are all nasty, look like they just got out of bed and came straight to church. Hey, they're a church. You have an opportunity to minister to them. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. You're too busy making them feel like they don't belong. I don't know who that was for, but God bless you. You can have it. All right. Now, in chapter 11, verse 17 through 34, as Paul talks about these things, he uses an expression in verse 27 that I, I would like to deal with. And he uses it again in verse 29. He says that you can drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily and you can eat of the bread unworthily and if you do eat unworthily you are guilty of the body and the blood of jesus and in verse 29 it says you drink damnation to yourself and then in verse 30 it says that for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep right and we understand that word sleep to be a reference to death right it's not talking about dozing off on the service there's lots of that that goes on, but not as a result of this. And so he's talking about eating and drinking unworthily. And what does that mean? Now, I'll just tell you as a little boy, that scared me to death when the preacher would talk about that. And there are lots of times I didn't want to, I, I knew I was a believer, but I didn't want to take the communion. I didn't want to take it because I was so concerned about eating and drinking unworthily, and, and rightfully so. But Basically, what it means is that we eat and drink of the communion with our heart on other things besides the Lord. All right? Can I just candidly speak to you? All right? I, I, I'll develop it more in detail because I've got something I want to talk about at the end of this, a little acrostic on the Lord's Supper. And so I'll deal with it a little bit more in depth. But if I'm sitting there participating in communion, my mind's on a football game I want to watch. I, I'm, I'm eating and drinking unworthily. If I'm looking around the room to see who else is taking communion instead of focusing on myself, I, I'm, I'm eating and drinking unworthily. If it's in the morning time and I'm taking communion and I can't think about anything with the fried chicken i got cooking, I'm eating and drinking unworthily. That's what I'm doing. My mind is not where it's supposed to be. The communion part is not fulfilling the purpose for which God gave it to me, to focus on the Lord Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so, there, But there, there's probably two attacks on this verse. There are some who, who tone it up. They make it mean more than it means in the sense that the Lord's Supper fills people with dread because they know that they are unworthy of the Lord. And they're scared that that unworthiness of the Lord means that they are drinking and eating unworthily. That's, that's a danger, all right? It's not supposed to be a time of dread. It's supposed to be a time of rejoicing, all right? But then the other tendency, the other attack, is to make it mean less than it means. To, to tone it down and almost flippantly take of the Lord's Supper. Almost like just, oh yeah, this is what we do as a church. And one of the reasons I've seen this happen is because lots of churches have a whole lot of decisions for Christ. But very few actual conversions to Christ. And so you've got a lot of unbelievers who are taking part of things that they don't understand because they don't have a relationship with the Lord. And it tells us that there are many in Corinth who were sick and weak. Not a few, many, and that many were dead because they took unworthily. So, Brother Dusty, what, what does that mean? I, I don't know all that means, but here's what I do know. 
I do know that it means that some sicknesses are penal. They're judgment. Some deaths are judgment. They're penal deaths. That, that's what the passage is teaching us. Some people are sick because God is judging them. Some people die because God is judging them. And he's talking about born-again Christians because they eat and drink unworthily. So does God still practice that today? I don't know. And I'd be awful careful about connecting the dots of why you're sick is because I watched you when you were taking communion and, or this is the reason you died. I would never, ever, ever, ever make that kind of statement because I don't know those things. But I do know what the scripture says. The scriptures remind us that there are people who are sick, not a few, many are sick. And there are people who have died, not a few, many who have died because they eat and drink unworthily of the Lord's Supper. And so when you consider those things, you realize, hey, there is a sin unto death, 1 John chapter 5 tells us for believers. And I'm not saying that the reason why you're sick or the reason why your relative died is because of that. But I am saying what the verse says. That's a possibility. It's there. Don't eat and drink unworthily. And so I want to go into this acrostic. Let me give this to you. All right. This acrostic about the Lord's Supper. I want to deal with these 11 things using Lord's Supper. We dealt with two of them just briefly last time we were together, and I'll deal with more of this unworthily thing a little bit as we get into more of it. But in review, let me remind you that the first letter, the L, is the fact that this is the Lord's Supper. 11, 24, and 25, Jesus says two times, this do in remembrance of me. Now, why would Jesus give us something to help us remember him? There's only one reason. Because he knows we forget him. That's why. He knows. So, Brother Dusty, we can never forget Jesus. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. Even as we get advanced in our understanding and move forward in theology and think about the deep things of God, we need to be taken back to the foundation of the whole endeavor, and that is the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Paul said this was the gospel that he preached, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. That is the core. And whatever peripheral things you get off into in your study and development and growth as a Christian, don't ever get past the foundational things of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And don't just stay there either. The book of Hebrews warns us about those things of we need to go on in the deeper things and understand it, but never lose the, the anchor, the foundation. And so God gives us something to bring our focus back on it as often as we do it. And he doesn't tell us how often we have to do it, but he just reminds us that when we do do it, it's so that we will not forget him. There's two things that God gives us that we don't forget him. One, he gives us something internally. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us to remind us what Christ did for us. Then God knows we need something tangible, something we can touch and feel to be brought back to that place of remembrance. And what he gives us, he gives us the Lord's Supper. And we do not believe in a transubstantiation or a consubstantiation where the body and the, the bread and the juice become the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to take the metaphor that far. And I know folks who do that because of what Jesus said in John chapter 6 about you have to eat of his body and drink of his blood to be part of him. And the reason why he was saying that was to emphasize that boundary of belief and unbelief, so to drive away those who were just on the fringe and not really part of him, and to draw those closer to himself. And you can read all about that in John chapter 6, where Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you going to leave? Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And so they take that 
and they take the figurative language and the figure, the figurative picture of the blood and the body and the juice and the bread, and they make it more than what it is. The point of it all is not so that I eat Jesus in a cannibalistic fashion to whatever degree you take that. The point is, is that I remember him. That's why I said to do it. Remember me. It is the Lord's Supper. Then the O, which we talked about last time, is this is the object lesson summary. And I just touched on that just a little bit. But the Lord's Supper is the New Testament object lesson of salvation. What is the Old Testament object lesson for salvation? Oh, wait. It's the tabernacle. It's exactly right. You read through the tabernacle, the pieces of furniture, the sacrifice, the labor, the table of showbread, the table of incense, the candlestick, into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies with the cherubim and the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. That is the Old Testament object lesson about salvation. The Lord's Supper is the New Testament object lesson. And we see how much more simplified it is because Christ fulfills all of those things. And we talked about those things together last time. So let's move to the letter R. The letter R is the reality of the Lord's presence in the Lord's Supper. So when Jesus sat with his disciples and he broke the bread and he gave them the wine and he told them what they represented, how real was that? I mean, I know you've seen pictures of the Last Supper. I hate that name, and I'll tell you why in a little while. But Jesus is sitting around with them, and God in the flesh is eating with them. Well, how real is his presence when we partake of the Lord's Supper? It's just as real. He's just as with us as he was with the disciples. Just as with us. Just like he's sitting at the table. He's just as with us. His presence is just as real. And his person is just as real, and his work is just as real as if he was sitting there in person. And sometimes maybe when you know you're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, ask God to make it real in your life. Make it real. His presence and his work are reality in your life. Because, see, the Lord's Supper engages all five of our senses, our sight, our hearing, our smelling, our taste, and our touch are all brought together. So that we may visualize and remember Jesus and what he did for us. Not just in the sense of what he did for us in the past, but the fact that his presence is with us. Even now, he eats with us and partakes with us in the sense of being with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And you need to remember that reality. The D, and I'm going to move through these quickly because we're in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians and there are 16 chapters. This is the 19th lesson I've taught on it. We've got some great things to get into, 12, 13, and 14 particularly. Um, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, some things like that. So make sure you don't miss those upcoming lessons. So I'll move this through, through this quickly. D stands for the delight that we should have at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral. It is a festival. Our God has risen from the dead, all right? The death of Jesus Christ is insufficient alone. He must rise to illustrate his victory over death and the fact that he's paid the wages of sin, which was death. Had he stayed dead, he would have been just like any other man. But he suffered and died and rose again. And so we're not to have grief at the Lord's Supper. We are to have rejoicing. Now, if you look at those four accounts of the Lord's Supper, you said, I know, brothers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, not John, all right? John touches on it just briefly 
in chapter 13, I believe, where he's washing the disciples' feet. And um, But it doesn't go into the depth about the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11. And in all four of those places, Jesus gives thanks. All right, it's a time of thanksgiving. Now, but I want you to think about it. Jesus gives thanks for the bread, and he gives thanks for the wine, the juice. <coughs> Excuse me. But what does the bread represent? His body, broken for his disciples and for us. What does the juice represent? His blood. Shed for us. So how thankful are you? Please excuse me. How thankful are you of something that you know represents intense agony that lies before you? How thankful are you when you realize that you're about to shed your blood? And that is what this picture is all about. The thanks that he gave is the thanksgiving in the face of overwhelming difficulty. What he would just in a few minutes sweat, as it were, great, great drops of blood, asking his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is the same thing that he gave thanks for. And so I remind you that the Lord's Supper is to be a time of thanksgiving. We don't suffer because he suffered. We don't have to have troubled hearts because his heart was troubled. We don't have to bear the judgment of God because he bore the judgment of God. And if he can give thanks for it, surely our hearts can be thankful for it as well. If you read Psalm chapter 11, verse 6, I, I want to read this to you because it, uh, it helps us enter in a little bit. Psalm chapter 11, God talks about the cup of the wicked. It says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and in a horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup. So which cup did Jesus drink? Well, he drank the cup of the wicked because I was wicked. He drank all of that fiery tempest and judgment of God as he hung there and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even though he was going to drink the cup of the wicked, he still gave thanks for it. Just helps me so much to consider where I am in my life and how good God has been to me. When I sat down and remember the Lord's Supper, Jesus faced things I'd never face. And in confidence to his Father in heaven, he gave thanks. And if he can do that, with suffering I'll never experience, can I do that in my little bit of suffering, my little tiny bit of suffering, the gift that God has given me to suffer? I can. Now the Bible says that after they came together and took of the Lord's Supper, they sang a song. And most Bible scholars agree about what they sang because they sang a portion of the Psalms and the Egyptian Hillel is what they sang, and it was written to be sung at the Passover, commemorating their deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. And traditionally, Psalm 113 and 114 were sung before the Lord's Supper, before the Passover meal. And then Psalm 115 through Psalm 118 at the close of the Passover meal. And so Psalm 115 through 118 is probably what Jesus and his disciples saying together, and it's about the deliverance from slavery. And so what kind of delight should we have at the Lord's Supper? We should have the same kind of delight of slaves delivered from slavery. Because isn't that exactly what his death and resurrection did for us? Absolutely. It delivered us from slavery, and we rejoice in these things. Jesus saying 
about the day of his death because it commemorated his people being delivered from slavery and filled his heart with thanksgiving. And so when we approach the Lord's Supper, our hearts should be filled the very same way. Psalm 118.24 is a verse people quote all the time. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And while you can make the application for the days that you're in, this is the day the Lord has made, that's not the primary fulfillment of that verse. It's not in context. That's not what he's talking about. I've also noticed, too, that most of the time when people say, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day. All right, when it's been raining for three days and everything's mud and yuck everywhere, I don't hear people say it very often. But in Psalm 118, he's talking about the day of deliverance and the day of his uh, of, of of the deliverance from the captivity, and Jesus sang it about the day of his coming death that he was about to experience. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. What day? The day I'm about to be whipped. The day I'm about to be beaten. The day I'm about to be punched. And the day I'm going to carry my cross up and be crucified on it. The day they're going to pierce my side. The day I'm going to be mocked and hung in nakedness and shame. That day, that's the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. And the Lord's Supper should be a time of delight for us. And we should enter into the new covenant of the Lord's Supper, understanding that God has done all things for us. i got to close, but Psalm 40, I think it's verse 8. David makes this statement. I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. How did Jesus Christ approach what was before him. I know he went through the period in the garden where he cried out if it be possible, but the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. And Psalm 40 gives us the idea that he delighted to do God's will. How do you approach God's will? Dread? Duty? Should be delight. Should be delight. Ask God, whatever difficult circumstance you're in, to bring your heart to the place of delighting in something Simply because it's God's will. Not because it's delightful, maybe, but because it's his will for you. And because it's his will for you, delight in it. Don't take it as something to be endured. Embrace it. Something to be delighted in. All right? Next time we are together, we will pick up the S from the Lord's Supper. The S on the end of apostrophe S. And then we will go on into the Lord's Supper and have some time together. Thank you so much for watching today. Uh, it means an awful lot to me that you would take the time out of your schedule to, for 30 minutes, listen to me talk about the Word of God. And if it encourages you, encourage me and help me. Like it, share it with somebody. Most of all, thanks for watching. This has been Pastor Dusty Brackett, Liberty Church, North South Carolina. You're watching Rooted. Have a good day.